Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. We have uh, a really interesting topic today, myths, myths of using litigation psychologists, uh, myths of litigation science. There's a lot of things that our clients tell us, or prospective clients that tell us when we say, hey, why don't you hire us to do a mock trial or hire us to train a witness or hire us to help you with jury selections. There's a lot of things that clients believe that are erroneous. And today we have Dr. Steve Wood, who uh, has the (laughs) experience of hearing all these things on a weekly basis because he's making a lot of phone calls. And he's going to walk us through this list of myths. And they're really not true. We're going to tell you why and give you several examples because I think that Again, a lot of clients have this thought pattern on how to use a jury consultant or how to use a litigation psychologist, and there's a lot of faulty thinking here, and I think I'm a litigation psychologist, and there's a lot of faulty thinking here, and I think I want to address each of these topics uh, with uh, Dr. Woods. Steve, are you there? Here, yes. Thanks, Bill, for having me on. No problem. Um, so, this topic that you bring up, and I have a couple of years on you. I'm in year 16 of doing this. Everything that you're about to t- tell us, I have heard for the last 16 years, and it's it's not going away, unfortunately. But why don't you just kind of introduce the topic generally, and then we'll take these myths one by one. Yeah, just generally, like as, as you said initially from the get-go is that a lot of times I'm, I'm calling and I'm talking to prospective clients and trying to get them interested or at least to understand kind of what we do as litigation scientists. And a lot of times I just hear a lot of the same things over and over and over again. So I, I blogged about it a little bit and then, you know, we wanted to talk about it today on this podcast to just kind of clear as litigation scientists go. And what I wanted to do is kind of work through and dispel each one of these myths, because I think really part of the problem we have is just this kind of lack of understanding as far as what we do, right? We have Bull on TV now. So oh gosh! Get the right, give the right me, people. give me a break. We have this opinion of what it is that litigation consultants do, and as you know, it couldn't be any further from the truth. So I think my, my goal was really to just kind of dispel each one of these myths, uh, so that people had a better understanding going forward. Do you know what this started with the movie Runaway Jury? Do you remember the movie Runaway Jury? Yeah, it's uh, Gene Hackman plays this you know, jury consultant. He has this team of people around him and it really didn't portray our industry in a very good light because i think like during the jury selection part of it he had people like going to he had his consultants going to people's houses while they were in court and like searching through their underwear drawers and stuff like that uh, underwear drawers and stuff like that Uh, we do not do that here at courtroom sciences um but why don't you bring up the first myth and let's uh let's break it down yeah, so one of the first myths that we hear a lot is that, you know, the idea that we don't really need a mock trial because we don't go to trial that often. And obviously, as we know, with the trial rate at almost less than 3%, no one's going to trial that much. No, no one is. So we, no. And so we have kind of, as we have in CSI and, and you and I have kind of come <laughs> to this idea that it's really settlement science, right? So yeah. We're looking at, Prior to the discovery phase, clients can have a better piece of evidence that jurors can find compelling, right? So not just going in and assuming, hey, we're going to go to war. We need to figure out the best way to 
approach each things in trial. It's more or less, what do we need for discovery? What are pieces of information that jurors are finding important that we can use when we're going into our depositions or depositions and we can, the questions that we can ask when we're in deposition versus what are the themes that are going to resonate at trial? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I tell you, things have changed. Um, I think six or seven out of 10 mock trials that we're currently doing are before mediation. And often clients call, smart clients call, and they say, listen, this case is never going to see a courtroom under any circumstance. However, we need to know what the potential damages are. So, as we approach a settlement negotiation or mediation, I need some scientific knowledge that I can go to my client and my client can go to their boss to say, this is what we think we should pay on this case. Uh, relative to the mock jury data. And we do that all the time. And no, we, we absolutely know the case will never go to trial, yet we're still doing the mock trials to help the client. Yeah, I mean, would you would you want to tell your client that you think the, the, the value of the case is $10 million and then only to find out later that it was really only $5 million? I mean, that could be a, a big swing for your client to have to pay out the $10 million versus when they could have actually had to pay out only $5 million. That, and that's okay. So that's a fifty to a hundred thousand dollar investment to save five million dollars. <laughs> I mean, that's a no brainer. But then the other thing that's well, even more dangerous is the when it works in the opposite way. Uh, you do the mock trial, and you think the damages are going to be ten, and they come back at thirty five. Now you have a problem. However, if you know that, and you have that knowledge earlier in the case, you tend to handle that file differently. And you can talk to the leaders uh, at the company or for the client or the insurance company and then start to make a plan. Because if you do the mock trial too late and you figure out, wow, you know, we're going to get and you figure out, wow, you know, we're going to get smashed and it's two months before trial, you don't have a lot of room to maneuver. That's actually that's funny that you bring that up is. Remember the, the case that you and I worked on actually where the case was being settled as jury deliberations yeah. were going on because they thought, oh my God, this case could get out of control. And we this is what we had never expected for it to be. Well, well yeah. Um, well, there's, uh, um, there's a couple of that, um, but particularly the one we're talking about uh, from the state of Arkansas <laughs> where, um, and we did, boy, we did two mock trials in one week, two day and a half mock trials. And as these juries started coming back, I mean, you could see, you know, in-house counsel hopping on his phone and running out of the room to call his boss because, you know, now they knew what the case was worth and they had the ability to, to make the right call and settle it for, for a favorable amount relative to the, the verdicts that were coming back. Yes, absolutely. And, and don't forget this, Steve. <laughs> and this is, again, there's a couple of things no one wants to talk about, but I'm going to talk about them because it's really important. This is a fact. Plaintiff attorneys are mock trying cases. Damn it. <laughs> so, how, you know, this is not a fair fight. If the other side's done a mock trial or a focus group and they know what's going on and you haven't, even if the case doesn't go to trial, imagine the leverage the other side, the other side has in negotiation. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah. And even if it goes to trial, right? We've had it before multiple times where we've had cases where we've mocked and then they've actually gone to trial and we've heard 
from attorneys all the time how they use the information that they learned in the mock trial to inform the trial strategy. One, one thing they thought was going to work, they realized in the mock yeah. trial it didn't, so they changed courses, or maybe they were going to blame the plaintiff. Have a trial that that actually made it, the verdict become a lot higher, so they changed the strategy and approached it differently. So even if you actually do go to trial, it's 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 nice to have. So it's it's various pieces, both on the front end and the back end, if needed. Absolutely agree. Uh, what's number two on the list, Steve? Number two is uh, our attorneys sufficiently prepare our witnesses. I mean, it, a lot of times we hear that from clients. Yeah. They they ask, "Well, what are you going to do differently that my attorneys can't do?" Uh, everything. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, as you know, this is not. We want to be upfront, and this is not a knock on the attorneys by any stretch, right? I mean, we've worked with extremely skilled, extremely oh yeah, um, intelligent attorneys that are very good at what they do as far as the law. They just don't have the background that we have in psychology. So we, it's not really like, hey, we're going to do something better that you can't do as far as like from a legal perspective. Like no. I can't go in and, and try a case like an attorney can, but at the same time, he can. But at the same time, that attorney has a different skill set than what we do as far as psychologists to prep witnesses in a way that they just can't do. Well, witness testimony goes bad in three ways. And these are psychological. None of these are legal principles. Poor cognition right? Emotional breakdowns and behavioral breakdowns. That's that's 95% of bad testimony right there. And that's 95%, well, that's 100% psychological is what it is. And so, you know, us coming in to do that, you know, uh, neurocognitive assessment, uh, emotional assessment, and this has been really important now that the uh, reptile theory uh, attorneys are in full swing, the amount of manipulation that is taking place, both at deposition and trial, is absolutely extraordinary. And without a more advanced psychological training, because this is psychological warfare, that's what it is, I think well-prepared witnesses on the substance of the case can massively fail during testimony if they don't have this additional training. No, and, and you know, you and I have both gone into witness trainings to the point where, you know, we've had attorneys or witnesses themselves say, oh, no, I'll be, I'll be fine. I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to be a bad witness. There's nothing that we need to worry about here. This is just kind of, you know, a no brainer for me, or this is a waste of time for me. And then within 10, 15 minutes, we can have them coughing up the whole case. Yeah. And this whole nuclear verdict topic, which we've been podcasting and we're writing about, we're doing webinars about it. Every one of these nuclear verdicts, the witnesses stink, okay? <laughs> the witnesses stink, and that's what gets jurors really angry. And I think it's quite easy for plaintiff attorneys to pick apart these witnesses and break them down if the witness isn't, pro isn't properly trained. And then even if you have a case with maybe a good set of case facts, even if you have a case with maybe a good set of case facts, if... <laughs> If the witnesses aren't delivering, you're not going to win, period. All right. What's number three? Number three um, is, is what I've heard a lot is that there's this kind of idea that litigation science is only for high exposure cases. You know, no. we've, we've talked to people before and they've said to us, well, I just don't have the right case for you. I don't have the right case for you. I don't have a case that, you know, needs your involvement. But then the question really becomes like, what what is the threshold for yeah. Like what, what do you, what does it take from a, a client's perspective to say, okay, this is the amount of money or this is the type of case where I need to get a litigation consultant involved. And 
as you and I know, is is there's really not a threshold. I mean, we've worked in cases all over the place where there's states that have med mal caps yeah. on their damages, and we do a ton of business in there because ton of business the value of it. Yeah, because yeah, it's do phrases, okay? And they're the exact same phrase, pretty much, <laughs> with with the exception of one word. And so, listen to me say this, right? I've had some clients say, because I go, well, what's the demand on the case? And they go, it's only $10 million. And then a different client, I go, what's the value of the case? And they go, it's $10 million. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, two different clients, two different levels of exposure. And, you know, some of these, you know, Fortune 500 companies... You know, maybe $10 million isn't a lot of money to them, but you have various layers of insurance, uh, insurance companies, uh, middle and smaller companies that maybe have some sort of SIR, uh, and um, they value, <laughs> even if it's maybe a million dollars. So I think that the nature of our services, we can also tweak our services to pretty much meet any budget. That's the other thing. So somebody says, well, this case is only a $3 million case. Okay, well, if you lose, how is that going to feel, <laughs> right? Meaning, you know, it's not going to help you, your career. It's not going to help your client. Now, for a $3 million case, do you need to do a three-day $150,000 mock trial? No, no. But you could do a one-day basic mock trial, maybe without some of the bells and whistles to keep the cost down, but you're still going to get important information. And then when the big one comes up, like we had in Arkansas. I mean, hell, we did two. We were there for all. We were there all week yeah. because we knew that the damages were going to go likely go over a hundred million dollars. And so, yeah, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time on that resource because it matched the severity of of, of the case. Right. I think that's actually a, a good segue into the fourth kind of myth that I've heard in that is that it's too expensive to use a litigation consultant. And I think you, you touched on it perfectly when you were using a litigation consultant. And I think you, you touched on it perfectly when you were talking about it, that, you know, too expensive in comparison to what? In comparison to getting a large verdict, you know, against you in comparison to settling a case for much more than you should have or, you know, too expensive to, to test out certain factors. So to your point is that we can work around budgets and, and pull back where we need to to help people get the, the the answers that they need to get. So I don't think it's necessarily like there's a thought that, you know, you have to do, as you said, the three day $150,000 mock trial, but that's just not necessarily true. And even if it's, you can't even do a mock trial or you can't even do a focus group. I mean, even if this witness trainings would be, would be worthwhile because the last thing we want to do is, is be called into a case later and have counsel say, Here's, here's my deposition testimony. Look at my witness here. And the witness tanks and say, well, what can you do now to fix it? And the answer is a hell of a lot cheaper than a, an adverse verdict. I could, I could tell you that right now. In fact, um, I, I told this story on a, on a, on a different uh, podcast, but it was this uh, plant attorney in Chicago who hit, he, got, he hit the city of Chicago for $134 million when a... Um, an overhang at a bus stop at O'Hare Airport collapsed and paralyzed this woman. And he, after the verdict, he bragged, he bragged to everybody and word got out that he had mocked the case nine times. Nine. Nine. Okay. And so he was, he had 
all his ducks in a row. Guess how many times the city of Chicago uh, did a mock? Just, just guess. Say like none. Zero. Zero. Zero, right? Zero. Zero. Why? Because they didn't want to spend the money. Well, you know, uh, did a mock. Just, just guess. Say like none. Zero. Zero. Zero, right? Zero. Zero. Why? Because they didn't want to spend the money. Well. You know, a hundred thousand dollars is a, a heck of a lot cheaper than one hundred thirty-five million. But that's just, and that's insane. I mean, that's like a no-brainer case to do a mock trial on. But it doesn't have to be. We did it. I remember there's a story uh, from George Speckhart, uh, and we talked about this during our, our mock trial CLE. Is we had an insurance company call us on a case that was uh, the demand was set like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And they thought that the man was too much. So we did like a $35,000 mock trial. It was down and dirty. And the damages came in at like 300000 So they went back to the plaintiff and offered four fifty. And guess what happened? The plaintiff took it. <laughs> so, but, or seven fifty. So um, even on the smaller cases, there are smaller projects that can be done that can say, and the whole purpose of what we do Again, no one wants to talk about this, but it's absolutely true. Our job, and we talk about all the psychobabble, our job is to save our clients money. <laughs> it's an investment. It's an investment. If you can, you give me a hundred grand and I can save you 10 million, uh, I think that's a pretty good return on investment, don't you? I would say so, yeah. All right. What's our, what's our next myth that we need to dispel? Uh, the next myth is that litigation science work really only happens right before trial. And that's a lot of times that it goes back to what we talked about before is that, well, it only happens right before trial, but we don't go to trial. Therefore, it's not needed. But as you and I know is, is it actually happens once the case is filed. I mean, there's so many times that we can get involved in a case right as it's been filed, whether that be exploratory mock trials or focus groups use the findings from the, the mock trial and focus group to help guide the discovery. Yeah. Once you have the discovery, then you can then move it on to confirmatory mock trials where we do that prior to mediation, you know, and, and one thing I didn't bring up earlier was that one of the things that our mock trial results have been used for is they've been used in settlement negotiations, right? Yeah. Been used in mediation where we've even had clients pull snippets from the mediation or from, from the focus groups of the mock trials and then show them in mediation, right? Where they say, here, this is the topic. This is what you think as far as the case is worth, or this is how you think jurors will react. But let me show you how this panel of jurors reacted. And it's, it's not how you think it is, or the, the cost that you think this case is worth. I can show you right here where, where jurors don't believe you that that case is actually worth that much. Yeah, that's effective weaponry to have. I, I tell you, what, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of litigation science does happen. A lot of, unfortunately, a lot of litigation science does happen. I'm, right before trial and it absolutely makes me nuts. So I'm working on this MedMal case in Chicago right now. Uh, I just got back last night. So I'm a little weary, got back really late. But they called me and I, luckily, they were lucky. I was already in the Chicago area working on a different case and I get this call of sheer panic from a trial attorney firm and I'm just, I'm not going to name them. And he's like, you know, we're in such trouble. The case didn't settle. You know, I, 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 my, my witnesses are terrible, blah, 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 blah. 
and and I had a case um, get continued, so I had some extra time, which is very unusual for my schedule. And I said, well, I happen to be in Chicago, and I can come over tomorrow and start helping you the rest of the week. And now, I, so I spent the rest of the week in Chicago. I'm going back Monday morning to do more, but it's it's hard. Some of the poor deposition testimony that I can't change. You know, I can fix deposition testimony before the deposition. But once it's in the can, and particularly you know, it's all on videotape, I mean, we have this doctor who essentially got reptiled, got reptiled to death. And here's, I'm going to read you the transcript right now. Okay, here are, here are all of his answers. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yep, that's always true. Yes, 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 yes. Um, that's a problem when you're going up against a plaintiff attorney using the reptilian method. Because that's a total setup to show that, you know, the standard of care is actually higher than what it is because you just said it was, doctor. And so, fixing those types of problems very late in cases is extraordinarily difficult and oftentimes too little too late. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And we, I mean, trials and we ask, you know, what when's your trial date? And it's in two weeks, right? So, it's... <laughs> <laughs> turnarounds. Well, the good but news. I mean, you know, the only yeah. thing I will say, though, is at least kudos to those attorneys and those clients who have actually decided, though, that, hey, you know what? Maybe we didn't think we needed it, but now we need it. So I guess, you know, it's it's better late than never. But uh, honestly, it would be better to get involved earlier so that we can provide more help and guidance along the way to make sure that that case that may now going to trial didn't need to go to trial in the first place, right? If it could have been settled for a number that was more amicable to both parties. Yeah, and actually, um, last night I got a phone call from our new client in Illinois that uh, we've recently been working with. Uh, they produce and manufacture heavy machinery, and the head of litigation called me and said, "Hey, because they have called us twice now, cases way, way late, but they just met us, so I can't blame them there." But, you know, they have a new case and they said, hey, we're still in discovery. We want to start. I, w- I want to get mock trial and I want to do it. A, you know, I want to do it as, as soon as possible, as long as we have enough discovery done. But I want to do it while discovery discovery still open. So we, we don't get caught behind the eight ball like we did on some of these other matters. So uh, they're coming around and uh, I'm looking forward to doing that one. Yeah, no, that's and like you said, that's 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 perfect. I mean, that's that's what we want. Right. I mean, that's a very good good sign and it's it's sign that their the client side is starting to realize that early is is actually a lot better right oh yeah because if i mean again if they understand they're going to get whacked and there is no trial date uh, imagine imagine what that does for you as the company or the attorney whereas if you don't know that information until right before i mean you know then it's like i'll, I'll give you a, a blindfold and a cigarette because that's about the only thing i can do at that point yeah oh what else we got all right. So the the last kind of myth that I've heard very often is when talking to uh, potential clients is kind of we already know the key issues in our case. We know what they are. And, you know, and, and honestly, attorneys and clients do often know what the key issues are. The problem is they don't know how jurors are going to respond to those key issues. Right. They might think that we. I mean, how many times have we seen it before where an attorney will think this is kind of the key linchpin of the case. This is going to be the thing that turns the, the jury either against us or 
or in favor of us. And then it ends up being something that jurors are just kind of like, okay, moving on. And they, they really hone in on something that the attorneys, they say after the fact, I never would have thought about that. I never would have thought that would have been yeah. our main issue. Every case, every case is different. Every venue is different. I mean, think about it. how long has asbestos litigation been going on for decades yeah. and Everybody, how long has asbestos litigation been going on? For decades. Yeah. And everybody knows what the arguments are going to be on each side. But you don't know what's going to happen in your case. And so that's why we do a lot of asbestos work still, um, because it doesn't matter what's happened in a different case. Every plaintiff is different. Every injury is different, right? Um, how the plaintiff presents is very different. And... You can't just look at history to predict the future when it comes to um, um, to litigation. It's really important to get those answers on a case-specific basis. And I think one of the times we see a lot of is that, you know, clients struggle or attorneys struggle with whether or not they should blame the victim. Because in some instances, the, the plaintiff does have some responsibility yeah. for the injuries, and then other times they, they don't. And, you know... Mm -hmm clients aren't sure whether they should or shouldn't blame the victim, but I don't think you want to find out in one and then they won't blame the victim in the other and they'll get stark differences. And I don't think you really want to be on the bad end of deciding after the fact yeah. that you blame the victim when you shouldn't have. No, absolutely. And now that you brought that up, my favorite research design in the world is the test retest methodology. Can you kind of walk our audience what goes into the test retest methodology and why it's so important on some of these cases. Yeah, sure. Because a lot of times, you know, we a test, the test retest is really just where we run multiple iterations with similar information, but in some instances adding additional, because as we know, there's some things that may or may not come in to evidence or there's different approaches that people want to take, whether they want to concede liability or whether they don't. You know, and you don't want to find out after the fact that you made the wrong turn. And, it, you, you know, you brought up before the the case that we did in Arkansas, one of the things that we did to test, you, you know, you brought up before the the case that we did in Arkansas, one of the things that we did to test, test and retest was how much finger pointing got pointed at other parties, right? We're, yeah. So the question was, do we accept full responsibility and show how remorseful and contrite we are and, and to just move on there or do we fight negligence or do we fight liability and then point fingers at other parties to find out you know hey you know what we're, we're not at fault here the party that's most at fault is this other party and then really strongly take a stance where they point the fingers at the other party and in that particular case as we found pointing the finger at the other party just pissed off the jurors and it, we found out that being more contrite and being more apologetic was actually the thing that resonated more with the jurors and reduced the damage awards. I mean, obviously there was not going to be any way that we were going to get, you know, out of it without any damage awards, but to lessen the impact of the damage awards yeah. just based upon knowing whether to, to concede or to apologize versus point fingers. So like I said, is Knowing that, those just those small different things, because when we did it, we didn't change much of the case facts. We didn't change any of the case facts. It was just the approach from the one party. So I think that, like you said, is something that you want to know prior to going to trial rather than say, this is the approach that we're going to take. We're not quite sure if it's going to work. And then find out after the fact that you chose the the approach that caused your yeah. <laughs> caused 
nuclear verdict, right? Yeah, and there's only one way to do that, and that is to test those issues in the test retest model. Um, related to that with test retest, uh, another way to do that would be on causation. You know, should you, you know, should you focus on liability issues or causation issues? Yeah, and like you said, liability blame causation here, and kind of see where that gets you, and see if jurors get angry or they accept it, and then. The other thing, and maybe this is a good myth too that I hear is when, if you have a case and you're admitting liability, well, that's a, that's a perfect uh, uh, chance to do a test retest mock trial because you can test different damages models. I think that's really important. We've done that several times where on day one, we we kind of lowballed, <laughs> really, really lowballed the damages and we pumped up what the plaintiff was going to ask for to see if that would tick jurors off. Oftentimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And then the next day we came in with a different damages model that was a little bit higher. And we thought, hey, maybe the jurors won't get quite as mad. And so that's another example of how to use the test retest. And by the way, that's what the plaintiff attorneys are doing. They're testing their damages models in their mocks. They want to know, okay, if I ask for $200 million, am I going to get laughed out of the room? Okay. okay. So they do a mock. They ask for $200 million, or $200 million, they get laughed out of the room. So they come back next week and they ask for 150. And half of the jurors laugh, half of the jurors are okay with it. <laughs> and then the third time around, they ask for 125, and now 75% of the jurors are okay with it. You see where this is going? Yeah. And and they're getting that data. So when they do come into the courtroom, when they're lobbing out these crazy numbers in the defense bar, because they're in this panic now over nuclear verdicts, they lob out this crazy number. The defense bar needs to understand that's a number that's been tested. That is not some wild, you know, pull it out of your butt number. That number has been tested at a mock and it worked at the mock. They're not just coming with this stuff, you know, out of nowhere. Well, I think that go actually goes to what you were talking about as well, is that we find a lot of times is defense counsel is not sure whether or not they should offer alternative damage numbers, you know, and we've seen, seen huh. kind of the... The idea of anchoring and adjusting, right? You got plaintiff attorney who's basically given out this high number, and then if defense counsel comes in and doesn't offer anything, there there's nothing else to go by, you know. But if they come in and offer some alternative damage number, then at least mm -hmm. jurors have kind of a anchor point on both sides. Yes. See a lot of times they'll they'll say, okay, well, plaintiffs is too high, defense is too low. Let's kind of meet in the middle somewhere. But if they don't have any sort of thing on the other end. They, they, they don't have anything to go with, and then you increase the likelihood that they're more likely to go with the, the plaintiff's number. Yeah, defense attorneys are absolutely terrified to do that because what I always hear is, well, if I, put out a, if I put out a number, that's essentially me admitting fault. Well, no, it's not, and there's a way to do that. In fact, that's what you tell the jury. You, you tell the jury, listen, I have, I have a duty and obligation to my client to argue these damages numbers. Uh, I don't think we did anything wrong at all. In fact, I don't, numbers. I don't think we did anything wrong at all. In fact, I don't even think you're going to talk about damages in deliberations. However, I have the duty to give you something more reasonable if you actually get this far. And then you put on your alternative damages number and jurors won't think that you're at fault if you introduce it that way. Right. And then even then too, you have to be careful about how you do it. And that even needs to be something that's tested is I've seen before where the defense attorneys have offered alternative damage numbers, but they're so low in comparison. Yeah. It's almost offensive that 
the jurors are like, okay, well, you know, you're not even, even giving us a realistic number, you know? So yeah, another thing that needs to be tested about, okay, well, you know, obviously keeping the numbers low, but what's too low to the point where we're going to get, you know, ignored. And, and like I said, I've, I've done it in a recent mock trial where I've seen a defense attorney offered an alternative damages number and the jurors just completely rebuffed it because they said, you know what, that's not even a, a, a legitimate number. We're just going to ignore it. So, you know what, we're going to go with what the plaintiff yeah. actually gave with because defense attorney wasn't even, you know, it was, it was a, it was a BS number. Yeah. And if you come in low balling and the jury perceives it as low balling, they're going to make you pay every single time. Absolutely. Outstanding. Well, Steve, Dr. Wood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I thought this was very informative. And uh, I'm going to wrap this up and, and let you go. But uh, thank you so much. I think we'll be doing a lot more of these in the, in the future. Good. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Bill. We'll talk soon. Talk to you. Uh, if you have any questions ever, please feel free to email me at bkanaski at courtroomsciences.com. And we'll see you on the next podcast. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.